Welcome to the Zeke Sky Podcast. In the 1940s, there was a psychologist named Abraham Maslow, and you may have heard of him. His theory and description of human needs and wants has become essentially a meme today. He invented what's known as the hierarchy of needs for humans, and this hierarchy is a pyramid of sorts. And essentially, what it implies is that humans have certain motivations that are at the foundational level And as you progress higher, you get needs that are less and less need-like and more and more want-like is one way of viewing it. At the bottom on the first level is your physiological needs. This would be your food, water, shelter, the things we consider biologically necessary to continue our existence. The next is security and safety. And after that, you have your love and belongingness needs, a partner, romantic or otherwise, friends, family. Next, we get to our esteem needs, and this is where it all starts to really feel like wants to me. A sense of accomplishment or pride, the sense that your time was spent in pursuit of living and not just life, you might say. The last need is self-actualization, which suspiciously also dovetails with that previous one, except for that it's generally coupled with some sort of artistic or creative achievement. Another way of thinking about this is a person becoming the most they can be. This is a useful tool for understanding, especially humans in our ancestral condition, where it was maybe a little tougher to get food and water into our bellies. But I think as resources become a little bit more dynamically stable and humans have a little bit more of a reasonable expectation of some of the baseline needs being met, what's emerging is more like a hierarchy of wants. And I would say that even though we talk about exponential growth growing on in our time, really this has been going on for thousands of years. The insulation that is provided by things like marketplaces and governments and even just the the basic ideas around trading have actually insulated humans from, you know, privation for quite some time. And I think maybe the best way of viewing that transfer, that change, that evolution, is by calling this thing really a hierarchy of wants at this point. And once you view it through this lens, it takes on a whole different complexion. And one way of maybe viewing the exchange and and the differences of needing the things that are on the bottom and wanting the things that are on the top is maybe by someone exchanging the foundations for the peak. So humor me for a moment, and let's just imagine that this hierarchy of needs has evolved more into a hierarchy of wants. Do you ever feel like you encounter someone who's maybe exchanged that peak for the foundation or the foundation for the peak? You know, someone who seems to thrive and feast on stuff like self-actualization, self-realization, or any of the other things that really come more from the top of the pyramid. Someone like this leaves a void of predictability in their actions. They, you can't really tell where they're going a lot of the times because they're seemingly not bound by the same rules of nature and the same rules of want 
that the rest of us are. So let's imagine that an individual does have this hierarchy of wants set up so that at the foundational level where you would usually have found those really basest of needs is something more like self-actualization. And now let's just imagine that these things, these wants, they actually kind of translate. They computate into a list of things that the person wants to acquire in the world. So instead of just self-actualization, there's a specific quality to that self-actualization. So if the emotion or the philosophy is something like love, you can imagine that the reciprocal action is something like devotion or protectiveness or self-sacrificing. So if the emotion or the philosophy is something like honor, then what exactly is the action that comes from that? Well, if it's honor for family, for country, for self, well, those things are the potential precursors for something like reciprocation or the restoration of order or even something like revenge. And this is the lens through which I want to try to understand the topic of today's discussion, the events, the person, and the things that lead to that void of predictability of someone trading those foundations for the peak. And he is known as Hannibal Barca. He lived in the 200s BC. He was the son of a man called Hamilcar Barca, and they were Carthaginians. The Carthaginians were a Phoenician people, and they inherited much of the legacy of the Phoenicians as great traders, and they were, of course, good boat builders because that's what you had to be to live in that part of the world and be great traders. They're known as really some of the best tradespeople in world history. And Hannibal is born in 247 BCE, and important to this story is that he's the son of a man called Hamilcar Barca. Now, Hamilcar at this time was basically always involved with warfare, and he was one of the best-known Carthaginian generals. And so Hannibal was brought up in the ancient military traditions with his brothers. He would have learned that for nearly 500 years, the Phoenician people had dominated the trade of the Mediterranean, and he was born in a time when the shadow of Rome was just starting to be felt in this region, and plays a key role in at least Hamilcar's life in the very early stages of Hannibal's life. Which also, you know, Hannibal's early life consisted of a lot of the things that maybe we would expect a uh, young warrior general to sort of go through in his early time, but I'll outline some of it. It probably consisted a lot of wrestling, hunting, horseback riding, and an ancient education, which would have meant that he would have known the works of Homer and the exploits of Alexander the Great, and he would have been well adept and disciplined in combat at a very young age. And Hannibal was one of three boys, and Hamilcar was known to call his three sons the Lion's Brood. And he was famous for saying that essentially he was training his sons to destroy Rome. And that's very nearly what happened, as you'll see in this story. Now, around 241 BCE, the First Punic War kicks off. Hannibal, being about six at the time, was uninvolved, but his father led the charge, essentially. And here's how the setup of this sort of works. Carthaginians had beaten the Romans in a sea battle. That was sort of a massive, massive victory for the Carthaginians, who erred towards, let's say, militaristic conservatism, and they wanted to recall ships and armies. Now, we don't know a ton about the system of governance in Carthage, but it turns out that Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, had previously pointed out that the Garosia, 
sort of like a parliament or government of Carthage, was made up of a wealthy aristocracy that generally hired mercenaries to fight its wars. The general idea in Carthage, from the most politically and monetarily elite, was that a protracted war served no one, especially since they were footing the bill. This contrasts so much with our modern notion of war, in which it is our fellow civilians, mostly from the lower classes, who are thrust off to fight our battles. It's interesting to sort of wonder how a mercenary army affects our inclinations towards battle, especially when the motives could be something more like territorial acquisition, which could have really been the situation here. The whole thing feels very much like Carthage Incorporated to me when I read the ancient sources, and there are a number of them. One of them that I work from for this podcast is called Polybius, who I'll talk a little bit about in the middle. I used briefly Edward F. Gibbons' The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which the, the, the empire is in a later period, but he actually takes a moment to talk about the way things were a little bit before the empire. Quote, in the purer ages of the Commonwealth, the use of arms was reserved for those ranks of citizens who had a country to love, a property to defend, and some share in enacting those laws which it was in their interests, as well as duty, to maintain. But in proportion, as the public freedom was lost in extent of conquest, war was gradually improved into an art and degraded into a trade. So what you have in Rome is actually the complete antithesis to what you have in Carthage in terms of warrior philosophy and how you draw out your warriors. It sounds like in this time, which is which is in the, the, the beginning stages of Rome, um, you have a cultural warrior class that wants to be there. They want to defend the country. They want to do all of these things that, you know, are sometimes maybe the best motivations for soldiers. And then he says it eventually degrades into a trade. It eventually becomes the thing um, that Carthage sort of does, which is they buy people to use their trade of warfare to go and fight their battles. I don't want to go too much into the Roman military system, but I do want to point this out. Quote, And yet so sensible were the Romans of the imperfection of valor without skill and practice that, in their language, the name of an army was borrowed from the word which signified exercise. Military exercises were the important, unremitted object of their discipline. The recruits and young soldiers were constantly trained, both in the morning and in the evening, nor was age or knowledge allowed to excuse the veterans from the daily repetition of what they had completely learned. So this is a military system that is based completely on daily training, on discipline, and on making sure this thing is a real organic reflection of the will of the populace. And maybe it's just me with my 21st century lenses looking at this kind of situation and this kind of philosophy, but I can't help but notice that this is only a couple hundred years after those Persians came and tried to smash Greece with a very, very large force of people every time they come around, and seemingly at places like the Battle of Marathon and Plataea, these Greeks who are better led, seemingly, with a little bit more motivation to be there, is maybe one explanation, seem to dismantle these Persians. Now, you can talk about other things. You can talk about other reasons why the Greeks were maybe better equipped and better led. You can talk about the supply train, but in my mind... What I notice about the Greek wars is that the, the Greeks are essentially fighting for their homeland, where they've always lived, and the, the Persians are trying to bring in this relatively impoverished place into their already thriving empire. How motivated are the soldiers in that situation? I think it makes a big difference. Now, back to Hamilcar. 
So the the Carthaginians don't really have a cultural class of warriors. They, they do. It's there, but it's just smaller. And the Romans seem like they really do bring a distinct cross-section of committed peoples to the battlefield throughout this entire conflict. Now, if we were placing warrior societies on a scale and one side is your Spartans and Roman legions and on the other side is your Switzerlands or something, Carthage is sort of in the middle, it feels like, and Rome is more to the other side. They have more of a Homeric ethos seemingly at this time, sort of like the Macedonians just before this period. And I think that this is sort of explainable in terms of the natural assets that both civilizations had. Historians talk a lot about the wealth that was inherent to Italy, and in my brain, it's that that sort of calculates itself into like a self-sufficient exporting type economy. And that probably had a lot of, you know, it presents a lot to a civilian populace to lose by territorial purges. Valuable land is, of course, an asset, but it has to be maintained. And we see, it, you know, time and time again, these Celtic and Germanic types on the border of Rome are always trying to smash the Roman borders. And it's not just because Rome has a beautiful capital and treasure. It's because of what you might call the poverty of the soil that is what a lot of Germany and Gaul at this time and even now sort of presents to a populace. Now, right now in Rome is actually roughly comparable to maybe the United States before World War I. What we have is a successful agrarian exporting type economy that has a lot of the natural assets that they would need to be successful, but still just a regional power. But anyways, what emerges in this moment, though, with Carthage and within Carthage is this underestimation of the will of the Romans. And this is something that just becomes another recurring motif in history, this indomitable will of the Romans. It's Another one of these expectation defiers, having an incalculable will can sometimes make up for other disadvantages. And like we said, Rome also had the traditional advantages we think of when we consider the rise of civilizations, fertile soil, and what we might call inherent wealth of land. Couple that with an indomitable will, and yes, you have a weapon system and a people that are likely to dominate the world one day, and the Punic Wars are part of that eventual global conquest. But that eventual scale of conquest happened in part due to a lot of what I'm about to talk to about here. Now let's go back to Hamilcar, the Carthaginian, the father of Hannibal, the subject of this podcast. A somewhat dogged and sluggish attempt was now made to resist the Romans encroaching in the Mediterranean, where they thought they had some entitlements to some places that Hannibal and Hamilcar and that sort of Carthaginian would think were, were actually realms that they possessed. And to be fair, the rise of Rome in this situation was probably difficult to anticipate to the average aristocrat back in in Carthage. We hear from a lot of people that before this time, Rome didn't even really have a navy, which is hard to believe. But the story goes that one day a Carthaginian ship essentially washes up its shore and some Romans find it. And it turns out that each piece of wood for the construction of the ship is numbered, almost something like you'd find at Ikea, I guess. And the Romans quickly copied the ship of the Carthaginians, who, as I said, were from Phoenician. The Phoenicians were up until then the greatest seafaring peoples of the ancient world. And they turn around and beat Carthage at the Battle of the Agiades Island, just west of Sicily. Now, this is a really important part in the story. Remember, we're not even on Hannibal yet. He's about six or seven when this happens. We're talking about Hamilcar, his father. Hamilcar essentially notices how thoroughly outgunned the Carthaginians were in this battle and how totally sophisticated the Romans became overnight and how this essentially novice navy 
defeated a totally unprepared and perhaps under-equipped force, and he's angry. Then he gets the word from the Garosia, which, remember, is that government in Carthage, had, that they've accepted a deal from Rome to avoid further battle, and that is to Hamilcar, as you could guess, unacceptable. We're told that Hamilcar won't even sit down at the table to hear about it, and the deal is this. Carthage has to remove every citizen from Sicily, which was contested land, all Punic ships, Punic is Carthage, withdraw from the many islands around Sicily, they have to cut off all the ties with nearby city-states and pay 32,000 talents of silver, which is an extraordinary amount of money. Now Hamilcar returns to Carthage totally embittered, and here's where we get the motivations I mentioned earlier, because they wanted these terms. The Carthaginians thought this was a pretty good deal. You can't help but sort of be sympathetic with Hamilcar, though. Here's a guy who's dedicated his life to military service and to being out in the field, endangering his life and the life of others, and he's told by a powerful and safe aristocracy that a continual retreat was needed against a force that was novice at best. And so with Hannibal, probably nine or ten now, he goes to a place called the Temple of Baal, who uh, Baal, Baal is the god that Hannibal was named after. And besides uh, a fire next to a fire or a pyre of some sort, perhaps in a place where humans are meant to be sacrificed, lots of controversy around that, can you imagine? He makes Hannibal and his brothers swear undying hatred towards Rome. I like how Patrick Hunt puts it in his modern book, Hannibal, quote, Placing his hands on the sacrificial victim and making his vow, this physical act would have fused a clear connection in the boy's mind between himself and the victim. Hannibal would have known that such vows made before gods such as Baal were unbreakable. That a living creature died and witnessed of a vow to the gods was the most serious part of the sacrificial ritual. Thus, Hannibal's own destiny was both sacrificed and consecrated to Baal, his god. Hannibal must have soon realized that his life owed all to the gods' mercy. He must have comprehended that an animal died while he lived in order to make this vow. And this is the day that Hannibal the child dies. And the day that Hannibal the lion's brood, or one of the lions of the lion's brood, uh, the terror of Rome was sort of born. Now, we have another author to deal with called Livy, who seems to know good details about Hannibal's childhood, who I'm going to talk about now. And let's just keep in mind that Livy is a Roman, and his sympathies are obvious a lot of the time. But Livy tells us that Hamilcar brings the young Hannibal on campaign when he's about nine years old. And Polybius also claims that at around this time, son and father marched overland in Africa towards the coast opposite of Gibraltar. And this is obviously formative for Hannibal to be nine years old and to be exposed and to hear, you know, the coarse jokes of those in an ancient army would probably have been a treat, you know, for most nine-year-old boys. But it's here that he would have heard camp songs, slept besides the fire, and learned the immaculate respect for which his father had earned through a long and hard military career. And of course, there would have been a sacrifice to the god Melkart, who was once the city god of Tyre, and Tyre is a place you might have heard of. It was a Phoenician island city that had been basically wiped clean by Alexander the Great sometime before this. More on that later because some of it ties in, but from Livy and Polybius make it clear that Hamilcar was not defeated in spirit by what had preceded this campaign. Now, I think Polybius has the line of Hamilcar being unvanquished in spirit, but anyways, the point here was that father and son were making their way to Spain to recover some of the old silver trade of the Phoenicians, and this was sort of a gray area to the Romans. 
Spain at this time was as mountainous as it is now, obviously, but also had a rich store of silver within its lands. And this was silver that would be paid to the Romans for the satisfaction of the treaty. But the general view is that Hamilcar was also amassing wealth for Carthaginian independence and perhaps a second military action. Now it's at this point, with Hannibal about 11 or 12, maybe 13, we start hearing of his participation in drill. He would have learned about the chain of command, how to respond in specific battle scenarios, and the authors have it that he was grazed by arrows and suffered some battle wounds from an early age, actually. We, of course, with our modern lens, find this heinous, but in these times, this type of thing was basically par for the course. He would have also met the Numidian horsemen at this time. The Numidians were a sort of skirmishing cavalry that were very difficult for infantry to handle. Whenever I read about them, there's something very alien about them. And over Hannibal's career, these Numidians would be a big deal for his continued successes. Now, I've also met the elite Carthaginian veterans at this time, and we should point out here that Carthage used a lot of mercenaries to fight its wars. This whole effort on the part of Hamilcar, to me, reflects the fact that Carthage was just maybe not as internally militaristic as he wanted it to be. And what I think this means is that the average Carthaginian foot soldier is probably mediocre in quality, maybe even a little less. They would have been hoplites, sort of equivalent to a Greek hoplite. You can look at them, too, on coins minted from Syracuse. They're depicted as a traditional hoplite with a short and long pike-like spear, perhaps with a helmet. Now, that's speculation. I could, of course, be wrong, but there's very little significant mention of this troop type, coupled with this with the fact that the Celts that Hannibal eventually teams up with are hard to manage, and the terrain he will eventually cover is, you know, there's this old saying that, an army of donkeys led by a lion will defeat an army of lions led by a donkey. This is sort of what we get in Hannibal's story, I think, a lot of the time, where he's eventually older and wiping the floor with Roman legions, which are known to be an elite troop type. It, it really just speaks to that. Now, let's go back to this time frame, Hannibal's 13 or 14. A few years go by, and Hamilcar leads a very successful campaign in Spain. And eventually he starts accruing a lot of silver, and eventually some of the silver is even minted with Hamilcar's face on it. Word of this reaches Rome, and of course they come around asking, not too comfortable with the Carthaginians sort of amassing wealth so quickly. And of course Hamilcar coolly and collectively answers that he has, you know, a, a war indemnity to Rome to pay, which was true. Remember Rome asked for that 32,000 talents payment as reparations for the war. And apparently the Romans say, okay, thank you, pay us quickly, and are on their way. Now, this whole operation goes well for a while, until he reaches this tribe called the Vitoni and attempts to harvest silver in their lands. By all accounts, uh, these Vitonis are some pretty nasty, scary warrior types living up in the mountains, and apparently they get reinforced by another tribe called the Orlitani. Now, they size up Hamilcar, kind of look the army up and down, and these Celts, despite being on the home turf and having every advantage, basically decide that Hamilcar is too dangerous to attack. They had too much respect for the guy, apparently. And here's where Hamilcar really starts standing out to me as something special. Because in basically every text you read about these Celts, they're impetuous. They'll charge up a hill at a better entrenched enemy. This is not really a strategy of, you know, intelligent ancient people. The fact that a head-on attack is passed on by the Vitoni suggests a very high level of respect for Hamilcar indeed. Now, we hear from another historian, a guy called Theodorus Siculus, that during the course of the negotiations that happened between the Hamilcar and the Celts, 
um, that Hamilcar is killed by one of these Vitoni. By the way, this is a big deal in the ancient world. On the list of biggest no-nos at this time is killing people during negotiations, but we see it a few times. It's not completely clear how Hamilcar actually died, to be completely honest. Diodorus states that Hamilcar drowned in a nearby river, possibly in the midst of some sort of sacrifice, which is, of course, in keeping with the Carthaginian sacrifice ethic. Polybius has him sort of doing the heroic, surrounded, fighting-to-the-death thing. Either way, Hannibal loses his father when he's about 20. And there's this old expression that you aren't a man until you've lost your father. And I'm going to guess that Hannibal probably was one and was ready to take up the responsibilities of his father just based on what he had witnessed. And remember, this episode is a question of motivations. The parameters for these ones do certainly seem like the type of thing that would keep someone from like Hannibal from extreme mourning over his father. That might have seemed like the opposite duty to Hannibal. Whatever the case, it's probably important to accept that Hamilcar's death was likely a strategic action to protect his son. That's in keeping with the general ethic that surrounds the man. Who knows, there's certainly no historical record of Hannibal's reaction to his father's death. All you can say is this 20-year-old kid with something like a decade of military experience under his belt, someone who, you know, took his vows to punish Rome seriously, now has this large void for him to fill and to execute these things. So now, essentially, the Carthaginian Spain is passed off to Hannibal's half-brother, Hasdrubal the Fair. And you get the sense that Hasdrubal is more of a Carthaginian's Carthaginian, shall we say. And this is what's so important in the story of the Romans and the Carthaginians. The Carthaginians were people who used warfare as a means of ushering in diplomacy. They were a wealthy civilization that preferred smooth trade routes, and they were opposed to anything that interrupted commerce. Hamilcar strikes me as a Roman general living in Carthage. Here's a guy who essentially likes warfare for warfare's sake, sort of this Machiavellian, almost Alexander the Great type, who would rather be out there killing people and would rather sacrifice gold than honor, and he doesn't really fit in with this kind of mercantile ethos of this more cheek, more plugged-in civilization. And the Romans are the opposite. They're this dogged, entrenched, farmer-type people that promoted people f for, you know, battlefield strength and gave honors to people who succeeded in warfare. Hamilcar would have made sense as a Roman general, to be honest, especially in this time. They must have been interested in him. This is before the Rome we know about, you know, the kind of Rome we would talk about under Julius Caesar sort of springs up. At this time, Rome's more rustic, more battle-ready people. So whereas the man with, with the most money and stuff and infrastructure for trading gets the honors in Carthage, the man with the most enemy deaths on his hands gets the honors in Rome. And the honors in Rome are called triumphs, and if you don't know what the triumphs were, check them out, it's fascinating. Rome was in many ways the prototype for the Western value system that sort of made its way into our modern military system. The idea of decisive battle and strategy and battlefield construction and updated weaponry is very much a residue of this period and perhaps the later period, maybe towards Caesar, where entire armies aren't beholden to the state per se, but to generals. It's eventually part of what does Rome in, actually, but in certain periods the effects are dramatic and the period of the legionary is one of those. But anyways, Hasdrubal. More the Carthaginian, more concerned with bread and butter, but we're also told by Polybius that Hannibal admires Hasdrubal. Remember, Hasdrubal is his half-brother. And this is interesting because it's not exactly what we would expect. I 
think Hannibal was tempered by, shall we say, the mercantile virtues of a civilization that was concerned about its bottom line. As we're going to see, that's probably not the most important part of Hannibal's character, but it's worth noting that Hannibal was known to give good burials to many of his opposition leaders and known to be merciful to people who were not Roman. We are not looking at some psychotic serial killer, I don't think, although this story does get very bloody. We're looking at a man who, at a very young age, had the discipline and will to punish the Romans for what he felt were wrongful encroachments and abuses. And, well, in the ancient world, that's not as simple as imposing some tariffs and shouting someone down at the UN. This was going to be a bloody struggle almost no matter what. Anyways, while Hasdrubal is leading the army, what we see here is that the mining operations become more successful. And what's fascinating about this is because, you know, we can actually prove this with scientific evidence. It turns out that you can examine ice in the Arctic to develop a profile of smog in the atmosphere. And we can look specifically at this period and tell that Hasdrubal is really going through the motions and gaining wealth. He's also having Hannibal marry a Spanish woman called Emilce, which doesn't seem like much, but this is a pretty standard way of colonizing a new place and using diplomacy. Have people get married, spread around some DNA, have some kids, everyone's happy until they're not. And unhappy they will become, the Celtiberians of Spain who Hasdrubal had cozied up to have some sort of insurgent faction spring up, and Hasdrubal is actually killed in an encounter with them by probably a very small force. Now, by this time, it's about 221 BC, Hannibal is now 25 or 26. And I just got to read this part. It's from another account of Hannibal, a Roman uh, called Livy. He talks about this moment. And I just love this. This is the moment where Hannibal, sort of in his mid-20s, is rising to take the reins of this army. And you can just hear the color and how cinematic this feels. But listen to this. Quote, The armies imagined that Hamilcar himself had been restored to them as he had appeared in youth. They observed in his face the same intense expression and penetrating gaze, the same confidence and strong-willed countenance. But Hannibal had not needed time to prove his resemblance to his father was not just physically superficial, and this mere image was the least important in gaining the support of the army. Never before was there a more suited genius for commanding respect and obedience from his men, nor did any other leader fill his men with as much courage and boldness. In addition, he was indefatigable, in body and spirit, and took no comforts or pleasures beyond those of his men. In fact, could often be found sleeping at night wrapped in a blanket like one of his merest scouts. The things that set him apart were not his clothes, which were identical to those of his men, but his horses and weapons, and above all, his position to be first into battle and last out. I just gotta point this out really quickly. That's Livy who wrote all that. That wasn't Polybius, that was Livy. That was the Roman historian who essentially is this hyper-patriotic Roman who stands to have his heart broken by Hannibal's incursion into his country. And he has all of these wonderful things to say about Hannibal. What you would expect is the opposite. You would expect the Roman to kind of slay his character. Now, there's maybe one or two explanations here. One explanation might be that if Livy sets up Hannibal to be this great general, it makes it more excusable for the future defeats that Rome suffers at his hands. The other explanation is that this guy, Hannibal, was just incredible, and he inspired everyone around him, and that's the explanation I tend to take a lot of the time. It's this moment where the army sort of recognizes the same characteristics in Hannibal 
that they had previously really loved about Hamilcar. And there are these Hamilcar was was sort of a soldier's general. He was the guy who would get down in the trenches and uh, dig. And it sounds like Hasdrubal was a little bit more on the other side. Hasdrubal was Hannibal's brother who just got killed, and Hannibal, the son of Hamilcar, is now invigorating this Carthaginian army to do what they're going to do next here. And understand something, this isn't just a cinematic trope. This actually would have had some really serious subsidiary effects. And one of them that I'm going to point out really quickly here is that it's obvious that the continuity of command is very, very relevant to how armies go about and do the things that they do. If you have someone whose personality is sort of infused in the ethos of something like an army or even like a corporation or anything like that, that thing might be crucial to the whole existence of whatever the operation is. And the fact that the thing, you know, passed from Hamilcar to his son, Hannibal, who is known to be kind of like exactly, maybe the same exact person, it's a big morale boost to the army, and I'll explain why. I mean, one of the things you can point out is that Rome, in the process of the next 20 years of events that I'm going to talk about, they will send scores of generals to go hunt down Hannibal, all with different philosophies about how it's best done. And what that actually adds up to is a lot of wasted time and a lot of dead people. Hannibal is the guy there from the start. He leads the thing from the beginning with always the same vision and as always the person who basically designed the plan or or really immediately inherited it from his father. And here we can see what the cornerstone of great leadership, especially in these kind of conflicts, really consists of. It's just this character of Hannibal that's it's pretty typical in these ancient genius generals. But, you know, his dad was a general, and he's also sort of got this rich kid vibe to him almost. He comes from money, and his dad had money, but they didn't really use it. And here he is taking part in the wear and tear and daily grind of being in an army. And it's inspiring, and it's definitely a cornerstone of good leadership, as I just said. But leaders who share in this hardship and bear the brunt of responsibility are always going to be able to maintain, you know a chain of command or even a charm of command better than their lazier counterparts because this is just part of how we work as humans, right? We take orders better from people who put their money where their mouth is. These days, of course, our generals are usually nowhere near the front lines, which is why sort of a chronological career path is more necessary, right? You fight in a war, you're a grunt, you do well, you show your mettle, and then one day you become a Patton or a Petraeus, right? This isn't really the case back then, A lot of times in these ancient battles, you see these extremely powerful people showing up on battle day, and you can't really say that it's always got this motivation to it, because if you look a little bit past this period, there's plenty of writing out there about Germans bringing wives and children to the battlefield, which, why are you doing that? But this usually backfires, right? There are a lot of incidents where doing this, you know, and having them lined up just pretty much organizes them properly for the slaughter. But this idea of battlefield accountability shall we say, is something we don't have as much of anymore. And you wonder, is it because people would only respect a leader who was steeled to the hardships of combat back then? It's probably a combination of that and the fact that a general who wanted to win a war wanted to be there on battle day and use his experience to guide and lead an army. But take these two things working in tangent and you have a a more dynamic weapon system, right? Because all the accountability exists in the one fighting the battle. 
when you examine the differences between armies who are commanded by separate philosophies regarding the dispersion of responsibility, a lot of stuff seems to crop up, and a lot of times it seems like it can make the difference between winning and losing uh, this exact philosophy on the part of your commander. Now, let's get back to Hannibal. I have to talk about the elephants because it's exotic and it's fascinating for people who don't know. And it's also relevant from a strategy point of view because, well, imagine lining up on a battlefield, expecting to fight fellow humans, and there are just 30 elephants stomping up a storm on the other side. And, oh yeah, you've never seen these creatures in a zoo or anywhere else, not on Google, not on Facebook. There's a few things here to recognize, and it becomes easier to understand as we go, but marching with elephants would kind of been like riding with tanks through villages that just got the first few cars in, right, with the horses. We're told that the tusks are sharpened of these elephants so that their tusks get really nasty and spike-like. So not so great if you get caught in that. And if you believe the ancient writers, these elephants are actually trained to lift and thrust and kind of use them as like a pitchfork, maybe? We also should make note here that an elephant and an elephant's skin could be as thick as two inches, which is effectively a shield, so dismantling these things with arrow fire or spears was probably a very tall order, even if you've got that Persian, you know, um, style of archery warfare going on. You probably had to get pretty close to one of these things to even kind of disable it, and I would guess a lot of them probably ran when wounded, which could spell disaster for either side, really. What you hear more about is enemy armies clearing runways for these elephants or using the elements to strike fear into them. I'm sure these things were part asset and part liability. So they're these big creatures, they're strong, and they probably just produce unencumbered fear from not only the Romans, but probably everyone who saw them near the Alps and may very realistically the people who were even in the same army with them. The idea of bringing elephants over a snowy mountain, which is about to happen here, is, as Patrick Hunt put it, a visual oxymoron. And we kind of think of that as a sort of humorous juxtaposition, like, oh, look, it's an elephant in the middle of the snow. But without a doubt, this had the effect of striking terror into local peoples, which Hannibal probably wanted, because part of the game here is converting some of these tribes we're going to talk about, and the ones we just talked about, the Celtiberians in Spain, and Celts elsewhere. He wants to sort of show them the flag and say, this is scary. You better join my side, and we're going to defeat the Romans right now. Now, everyone asks what kind of elephants these were. We don't hear specifically about this from any of the sources, but what we do know is he had about 30 when he started out. And generally, it's thought that the Asian elephants make some sense, given its trainability. You may ask how this would even be possible, but it turns out that Alexander the Great encountered a few of these when he's in the process of bringing Persia to its knees about 100 years before this period, and we're told they're bred in Syria by one of Alexander's generals, actually, and they eventually end up being imports from Alexandria to Carthage right around this period. But anyways, Hannibal has some quick successes after inheriting the army. Relatively small in Iberia, but what's becoming clear from it is that a lot of these people in the area who had either been under the Roman thumb or affected by the increasing scope of Roman rule are interested in seeing what this 26 or 27-year-old kid can do. But Rome also had some other concerns at this time. This was a people, the Romans, who you know seemed to be continuously at war, right? They've, they've got some stuff going on. They're fighting a people called the Illyrians at this time, and this has them very distracted. It's likely, however, that many in Rome knew there was some kind of issue in Spain, but I doubt they knew that Hannibal was it, 
And if they did understand his motivations, they may have been a little bit more forceful in response because this is a guy with the stated and known inclination to destroy Rome or at least restore the status quo antebellum. So Hannibal is now on this course with destiny to confront Rome. He starts gathering intelligence and he decides that he's going to sack a city called Saguntum, which at this time is under Roman protection. There's a few reasons he did this, but this is sort of a die that's being cast in the moment, too. The critical point of no return is right here. Now, this is one full-scale siege of a hill city, and it's serious business because whether Hannibal had done something like this before is anyone's guess, but the siege itself takes almost a year. And in the course of this siege, we're told Hannibal himself is actually injured possibly by something called a falarica which sounds like a sort of catapult that launches spear-like objects with hot tar on them. Lovely. As sieges go, this is a relatively long one at a year, and it was certainly a massive exertion for both sides. It takes long enough, and this is crazy when you think about it. Word reaches Rome of exactly what's going on, and they have time, actually, to scramble some ships together and send them over. This is pretty far from Rome. These people essentially confront the Carthaginians, this, this Roman delegation, and tell them this needs to stop, and we're told that Hannibal basically doesn't care, doesn't pay them any mind, basically sending a translator or a go-between with a message explaining that the Romans had executed his allies and perhaps had some other grievances to air, and that didn't give away this whole, you know, my father is making me do it angle, which they didn't understand, I don't think, quite yet. They probably knew he was the son of Hamilcar, but he aired some other grievances. So these diplomats actually go straight to Carthage and confront the Carthaginian government about this, right? They go to Carthage and they ask what the hell is going on. You know, are we at war? There's some argument in Carthage, but ultimately Carthage and the Garosia sides with Hannibal, which is not what you would expect based on the other things I told you about Carthage. But at some point, the Saguntum, where Hannibal is besieging these people, runs out of stones and projectiles to throw, which is generally a good indication that the people inside have run out of food. One way or another, Hannibal is in Secundum by the fall of 219, and this is really the first battle of Hannibal, and the first bout of what's really going to become a lifelong conflict with Rome, and he's about 26, 27 now. Now, this has totally set the stages for war. He's encroached on a place that Rome has considered a protectorate city, and there's no bandying words anymore. Rome knows it's at war with this young general. The problem is that the Romans, and you can it sort of comes through the sources and the accounts, um, matching the reality, they, they really just aren't taking this seriously. They have situations like this a lot. For all Rome knew, this was a Celtiberian army with Hannibal at the head of it, pulling the same old tricks that these Celts had been doing for a while, right? And Rome could not have been unaware of the chafings of these more rugged barbarian peoples everywhere, right? There was a lot of people who sort of thought that Rome was becoming a little bit too big for its boots. And it's in this time that the acquisitive nature of the Romans is being noticed more and more, especially by these barbarian people, that their territorial expansion seems to become habitual and an increasing problem for the people at the borders of the empire. And they probably just didn't understand that they were fighting an opponent that had Hannibal's motivations, which were to really roll this back and feeling like they had been burned. And 
this is what we were talking about in the beginning of the episode, right? People with strange motivations defy expectations, and they can quickly confuse and bewilder an opponent. And I would say that that's maybe what Hannibal has working in his favor right here. But at some point, the Romans are taking it seriously enough. You figure out that, you know, they figure out that it's worth putting some armies together under some of their good generals, and they send a guy called Publius Cornelius Scipio and Tiberius Sempronius Longus. And we're going to take a quick look at this because it provides a wonderful insight into what's essentially going to happen here and what's, you know, the philosophy of the Romans here, the ideas of the Romans, which is basically what is this 27 or 28-year-old kid going to do? Is he going to rip apart Roman army after Roman army? Probably not. Let's not worry too much. Um, but he is, and he's going to do it in ways that are so eloquent. It's it's very hard to even discuss without feeling like you're reading The Lord of the Rings or something. Now, these armies that Rome sends are on the large side. They aren't quite what you get from, say, the Persian Empire during their wars with the Greeks, but substantial. Polybius, who writes a lot about this period, and Hannibal tells us about 90,000 soldiers and 12,000 cavalry start making their way towards Hannibal at this point. It's sizable. One of these armies is sent to Carthage, and one of these armies is sent in something like a blocking position to stop Hannibal at a place called the Ebro River. Now, here's another little sidebar. This army of the Romans, you know, it's all one people. They speak the same language, they could be related, they share cultural ideas, and this is not so with Hannibal and his army. And it's increasingly going to become a factor in how he fights. And it's helpful at times and a drawback at others. Hannibal is drawing on his own people, and from people from local tribes, and also a cavalry type from Africa known as the Numidians. Now, these Numidians seem to be pretty awesome. They're a quick-moving type of skirmishing cavalry with a smaller horse. They seem like they're a lot of hassle to, you know, to get in line, and they badger stragglers and stuff like that. But without a doubt, they make a difference in the open combat as well. I've read a lot about these types, and what I think about is like a football player mounting a horse that is trained like a soccer player. Probably just totally wrong, but it's always fun to speculate. Now, Hannibal starts making his way northwest, crosses the Pyrenees, and look at that, now he's in Gaul. Now, he meets up with these Gallic tribes who are very finicky. Many times throughout history, you can just kind of see they're really looking for any excuse to rebel against anyone, but particularly the Romans, because... Again, the, the wealth disparity is real here, and they certainly aren't interested in sitting around and waiting for the Romans to conquer them. Little do they know that this 27, 28-year-old kid is a very good reason to start getting uppity. This is a good time to start th- trying to throw off the, the yoke of Rome. Hannibal snatches up some of these peoples in the Po Valley, nasty warrior types. Members of a tribe called the Boi. Boi? Not sure if I'm saying that right. It's just one of many, but... Now he's got two things separating him from Italy. He's got the Rhone River and the Alps. Now the Rhone River will be a task in and of itself, but the Alps is the thing that really starts putting him in the history books. And we should point out that obviously this process isn't what it would be with, you know, GPS today and smart systems and smartphones. Something like this is a hell of a task, and it doesn't just take coordinated discipline of your ranks and the orderly execution of supply routes. All that's a factor, but you just have to take it for granted that Hannibal had great logistics, right? No, what Hannibal needed was actually like the level of intelligence about terrain that would enable him to do this in a systematic manner. And we hear all kinds of stuff about Hannibal's craftiness and gathering this intelligence. 
Polybius and Livy both mentioned that he would take up disguises, you know, like fake beards and such, in order to insert himself in situations he couldn't ordinarily be in, because I guess he was pretty recognizable, even at this time. This sounds like a strategy from, like, the, the Odyssey or something, right? Sounds like he employed women for extracting, shall we say, pillow talk from the enemy Celts or Romans. Very conniving and detail-oriented. He figured out exactly the best time to cross the Rhone and the Alps, and it's all very sophisticated when you get into the nitty-gritty of how he actually got his intelligence. It actually sounds pretty modern. It's a little shocking to hear. But at this point, it's time to cross the Rhone, and it's becoming more and more obvious to anyone on the ground who's Roman that this is going to be an attempt to get to the Alps, right? But due to Hannibal's speed, it seems like the crossing of the Alps is open to debate. We, we know for a fact that Roman allies, including Massilia, are aware of this march, but whether or not they thought that it was possible is anyone's guess. They probably thought it wasn't possible. They probably did not think that Hannibal would be able to cross the Alps, especially with this big, nasty army that he had. So we're told Hannibal reaches the Rhone, and he does it by going through these marshlands that are sort of parallel to the river. And this has the dual effect of evading some Roman-friendly cities, and it really limits the reconnaissance potential of a encroaching army. So while Cornelius Scipio sends a small force of a few hundred cavalry to track Hannibal, they get bogged down and can't quite keep up, and they're, they're told that relaying Hannibal's position becomes increasingly difficult in these marshlands. And this is what I love about the story. Hannibal is, in a sense, outfoxing the Romans, but he's doing it in a way that's just extremely taxing on them, on the Romans and their men. It's, it's very scorched earth without the scorched earth. He must have commanded an extreme amount of loyalty to do some of this stuff with his own soldiers. And this little maneuver he's going to do next really shows it Remember, Hannibal has the whole army with him. This is not a flanking force. This is not a warning shot. This is the whole kip and caboodle. And with him are these elephants. And as historians continually point out, that forces Hannibal to make more pronounced arrangements for transport. So Hannibal will get to the Rhone and be forced to acquire enough boats to transport all of his elephants and everything across the river. It's, it's a crazy task. And while it's not some massive river, it's several hundred yards, and that's plenty of water for a disaster to happen, and especially with a bunch of elephants on your little boats. So Hannibal, with a combination of sheer force and bartering, starts amassing ships on the western bank of the Rhone, and we're told that a hostile tribe called the Volci amass on the other side. They don't want him to do this. And here we get a little bit of a standoff. Historians are divided on the topic of who was here and what the needs to fight were, but the general idea here is that within a very short period of time, Hannibal sees this Volkai tribe amassing on the eastern bank and understands that he can't sit for long, because the longer you sit, the larger that force potentially gets on the other side. He's not in a position to do some type of armored crossing, and you get that from time to time. Uh, There's a famous crazy one, actually back in Alexander the Great's time, where Alexander the Great constructs these ships with essentially towers on them to besiege the island city of Tyre. So that happens, and Hannibal would have been aware of that kind of fighting, but he had another idea here, even though something out of Alexander the Great's playbook would have been typical for him. And it's not specifically his idea. You can find other examples of it, but basically here's what happens. Hannibal orders a small portion of his force with some Numidian cavalry and perhaps some Celtic guides north on the side of the river that he's on. They go out under a sub-commander, a guy called Hanno. 
Hanno takes them north to a shallow point, and they cross the river with improvised boats. This is downstream now of the other army. They now end up upriver from these unsuspecting Volkai, who, you know, they're a Celtic tribe. They're not exactly known for their tactical brilliance. Um, and now they're on the same side of the river. And Hanno has orders to go get behind these Volkai and sort of sandwich them against the river. Hanno sends up some sort of smoke signal that lets Hannibal know that it's time and he's, he's behind them. And Hanno essentially comes up behind these unsuspecting Celts and hits them in the flank. Most probably this was done by lighting fire to the camp and sort of attacking in force. And somewhat of a battle ensues with Hannibal crossing the river with a hardcore of his best veterans. But by and large, these Volkai run and scatter quite quickly and we don't hear from them again. Hannibal spends the next few days transporting his cavalry and everyone else across this river. And if you can remember, he's got these elephants with him, right? So Hannibal has his engineers essentially draw up these rafts that sort of fit them together in a bridge-type formation. He's able to ferry them across, and he loses a few in the process, but most of them make it. Probably about 20 to 25 make it. All in all, he crosses with most of his army and assets intact. So now Hannibal is at basically the footsteps of the Alps. He's in the clear, although we hear of a, a small little cavalry skirmish that happens when he sends his Numidians remember that's that skirmishing cavalry, out either to look for supplies or investigate an enemy position. So, of course, historians wonder why he didn't openly confront the army that was already coming to get him that was nearby. But the reality was that at this point, Hannibal is in Gaul, and Gaul is sort of tribe by tribe deciding whether or not they'd like to invest in this conquest. So not having a battle on their turf and not needlessly destroying potential allied territory was probably a wise idea. It was, it was best not to have a, a battle here. He's able to manipulate these Celts time and time again this way into joining him despite the odds and potential repercussions. Now, this also underscores another great thing about Hannibal. He needed these Celts to work with him to secure his conquests because the leadership in his country got extremely stingy about reinforcing him. He'll go a decade just wiping the floor with these Roman armies, and what he gets in terms of reinforcement is absolutely abysmal, and it's only his speed of motion and discipline that ultimately allows him to get anything done, which I will tell you more in the next episode. And in the next episode of the Zeke Skycast, we're going through the Alps with Hannibal, we're going to examine what his journey was like with these elephants and horses, there will be ambushes and elephants falling off cliffs and much more. We'll see Hannibal make it to Italy and absolutely stun the enemy leadership in Rome, almost totally bringing Rome to its knees in a series of what can only be called some of the greatest military maneuvers in history. Thanks for tuning in.